Namaskaram. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about the 20th paragraph of Nana. This is the last paragraph. Um, <clears throat> uh, what Bhagavan says in this paragraph, the first two sentences are, Tan erandal sakalomum erum. That means if oneself rises, everything rises. Oneself here means uh, ego. Oneself, if we rise as ego, everything else rises. Rises can also be taken to mean appears. Um, so we, only when ego arises does everything else arise, because everything else exists only in the view of ego. This is what Bhagavan also teaches us in verse, um, well, in many places, but he puts it particularly clearly in verse 26 of Uludunapadu. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, know that investigating what this namely ego is, is giving up everything. So they, they, what he says there in Ulujanapdu, he's saying here, uh, or, well, he's saying the first part uh, here in this paragraph. If oneself rises, everything rises. And then in the next sentence, he says, Tan adanginal sakalum adangum. If oneself subsides, everything subsides. Subsides here means disappears or ceases to exist. Uh, so rises implies coming into existence, uh, subsiding uh, sub, uh, implies uh, ceasing to exist. So if we come into existence as ego, everything comes into existence. If we cease to exist as ego, everything ceases to exist. We can see this from our own experience. Every day in uh, we, we rise as ego in waking and dream. As soon as we begin uh, as we uh, begin either in this waking state or dream state, everything else appears. Everything else exists only in our view. So when we as ego cease to exist, albeit temporarily in sleep, everything else ceases to exist and comes into existence again only when we wake up. Um, <clears throat> so this is, the, this is one of the fundamental teachings of Bhagavan. So the uh, the root cause of all problems is our rising as ego. Because if we don't rise as ego, nothing else exists. What, what, when we don't rise as ego, what exists is only ourself as we actually are, namely pure awareness. Uh, so all other things seem to exist only in the view of ego. And hence they, uh, they come into existence or seem to come into existence only when we rise as ego. Um, then in the, the next sentence is a very, very important sentence. It's a, it's a little bit difficult to translate accurately into English, but the idea we can, we can explain. That is what, what it, um, what Bhagavan says in this sentence is, Ebolo kebolo tandu nadikiromo, avolo kabolo nanmayundu. That means to whatever extent sinking low, 
or subsiding or being humble, we proceed. Proceed here, um, literally, nadikaromo means we walk. That implies we conduct ourselves, we behave. So, it's, to what to every extent, sinking low, we behave. To that extent, there is goodness. That is, but this is Bhagavan's definition of what is goodness. Subs, the implication is subsidence of ego is is alone true goodness. Uh, whatever we do, we should do subsiding as much as possible. Of course, if we subside completely, all doing will come to an end. But um, so only to the extent to which we subside, to that extent, is there goodness. So the whole, all the root of all evil is ego. If ego rises, all problems, all suffering and uh, all the pairs of opposites, good, bad, life, death, um, uh, existence, non-existence, and so on, all come into existence only when we uh, rise as ego. Therefore, to the extent to which we subside, to that extent is it good. Uh, that is Bhagavan's, um, Bhagavan's conclusion. So this is a very, very important verse. Bhagavan's, what Bhagavan's teachings are all about is about subsiding more and more and more. This subsidence of ego is what is otherwise called uh, self-surrender. And the, the means by which ego will subside is by turning its attention back within to attend to itself. Because, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, he describes their ego as a formless phantom or formless evil spirit. He calls it a formless because it's got no form of its own. He calls it a phantom or evil spirit because it has no substance of its own. It borrows its its substance from Satchit. That is, from Satchit it borrows its existence and its awareness, as I am. And from the body, it's, it borrows its form. It conflates these two things, these two contrary things. Uh, that is, our real nature is pure awareness. A body is jada, it's devoid of awareness. These two are conflated together as the false awareness, I am this body. That is ego. Um, <clears throat> so, but, uh, and what he says in verse 25 is, Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. What he means by form is any object or phenomenon. And in other words, anything other than ego. Ego is formless, so whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So, and grasping, since ego is formless, grasping doesn't, it doesn't mean grasping, there no, ego doesn't have any hands or limbs to grasp anything. Grasping means grasping in its awareness, attending to anything other than ourself. That is, ego cannot rise, stand, or flourish without attending to other things. Uh, so, so long as we're attending to things other than ourselves, we're feeding and nourishing ego. Therefore, the only way to bring about the dissolution of ego is to try to grasp ourselves. That's what he means when he says, Tedinal otumpidicum. If sought, it takes flight. If sought means, um, 
Again, it's difficult to, Tamil has a particular genius of expressing things in a very impersonal way. In, when we say in English, it's sort, that's passive um, voice. It's actually in, in uh, Tamil, it's not passive. It is what is called middle voice. It is a subjectless active voice, we can say. So, but the, so both the subject and the object are implied. The subject, the one who is to invest, to seek or to investigate is ego. The one who is to be sought or investigated is ego. So if ego investigates itself, if ego seeks its own reality is the implication. If sought, it takes flight. Takes flight, um, the Tamil term is autum pidicum. Um, that, um, autum means running, pidicum means grasping. So it's more or less the, the, uh, the exact same meaning as take flight in English. In English, take flight means to run away. And my question, Michael, about ego is what is, what is there that ego is not? I mean, isn't ego everything, even not only our thoughts, but as I think Ramana himself said, our breath, our final breath is a breath of ego, isn't it? That we believe well, the illusion? That, that is, we need to be very clear about this. Ego, that is what Bhagavan says in verse 24, ego is neither the, the body, because the body is jada, the body is not aware, so it's not aware of itself as I, nor is ego satchit. Because Satchit, though it's awareness, it, it doesn't rise. Ego is something that rises between the two. So it, that the between means it takes the properties of both. It, from, from Satchit, from pure being awareness, it borrows its, uh, its existence and its awareness. Or it, and from, um, from body, it borrows its form, but it is neither. So ego is not actually anything. But as he says in verse 26, but I, uh, but I um, explained a little earlier, everything else exists only in the view of ego. So if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Therefore, ego is everything, he says there. What he means by saying ego is everything is nothing has any existence apart from ego. Since all other things exist only in the view of ego, they borrow their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ego. So, for example, when we are dreaming, the, the dreaming mind is seeing a world full of people and activities and so on. But actually, what are all those things? It's nothing but the mind seeing itself as all those things. So, when when we as ego see this world, we are seeing ourselves as this world. In that sense, Bhagavan says ego is everything. But at the same time, ego is something distinct from everything because everything means all objects or phenomena. Ego is not an object or phenomena, it's that to which all objects or phenomena appear, that in whose view all objects or phenomena seem to exist. So, uh, Ego is that that's why in this verse 25 that I'm explaining now, he says he describes ego as formless. It has no form of its own, but it cannot stand without grasping form. But those forms cannot stand without except in the view of ego. So it is ego that rises, projects all these forms, 
grasps this this first form of body as itself and then sees all the other forms through its five through the five senses of that body so all this we can say it's an expansion of ego but ego itself is not any of these things these things are all ego because they've got no existence independent of ego but there's nothing that we can point out and say this is ego that's why he says in this sentence that i'm explaining now if we if we if ego seeks its own reality if it turns its attention back within to see who am i it takes flight it disappears it takes flight means it runs away in in a in a on a battlefield if the enemy is stronger um the, finally, the troops will all run away. That's called taking flight. That's exactly what Bhagavan means there. If we, this ego rises, stands and flourishes by attending to other things. But if we look at it, it runs away because it doesn't actually exist. That is, we seem to be ego so long as we're attending to things other than ourselves. When we turn our attention back within to see who am I, there's no such thing as ego to be found. That's why he says, if sought, it takes flight. Very this, good. Is, this is what Bhagavan says in that verse 25 of Uludin Avenue. That is the fundamental principle of his teachings. But the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by grasping form. That means by attending to things other than itself. But if it attends to itself, it will subside and disappear. Other things flourish to the extent to which we attend to them. And ego also flourishes, but if ego tends to itself, then it uh, runs away. It goes into hiding because it doesn't. It, it it cannot stand in front of our gaze because it has no it has no real existence of its of, of its own. So when when we as ego look within to see who am I, ego disappears, and what then remains is what we actually are which is pure awareness, pure satchit, pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love, infinite ocean of satchit ananda. There's just, just one more sentence. Okay. Um, the final sentence of the whole work is, manate adangi adaki kondirandal enge irandalum irakalam. That means if one is uh restraining the mind but the form of the verb adiki means constraining uh, or restraining adiki kondirandu means it implies continuously restraining it, that is it's uh, it's it implies a continuous action so if, if one is continuously restraining or curbing or subduing the mind wherever one may be one may be Irakalam can mean one may be or let one be. It can be taken in either way, but the main meaning is one can be. So, so long as the, that, that is in the previous sentence, he said, to whatever extent sinking low, we conduct ourselves, to that extent it's good. And here he says, that is what he talks there about uh, sinking low. Here he talks about as curbing the mind, restraining the mind. That means uh, not rising as ego is the implication. So to the extent to which we avoid rising as ego, wherever we may be, we can be. Nothing, uh, nothing will affect us so long as we subside. It, all thing, all other things 
cause trouble to us only when we rise as ego. So to the extent to which we subside, to that extent it's good. To that extent we will be unaffected by anything. So wherever we may be, even if we're in hellfire, doesn't matter. It makes no difference at all. So long as we're subsided, because nothing can affect us, that is, only when we rise as ego do we have likes and dislikes, and only when we have likes and dislikes do other things affect us. There are so many circumstances in life that trouble us. Um, we may be tr if we suddenly told that we've got terminal cancer, that'll trouble us. If we, if um, if we uh, if we're not able to pay all our bills and we are we we have we are evicted from and we're not able to pay our rent and we're evicted, that will trouble us. So many circumstances of life, when those who are near and dear to us um, pass away or are seriously ill, that troubles us. All these things affect us. Why? Because we have likes and dislikes. If we had no likes and dislikes, nothing would affect us. And likes and dislikes have a very nature of ego. So if we rise as ego, there'll be some circumstances we like, some circumstances we don't like. The circumstances we like, we will try to grasp those circumstances, hold on to them. And um, that will be bondage for us. We'll try to avoid those things that we'll, we don't like. But both the likes and dislikes cause trouble to us. If we want to be free of likes and dislikes, if, sorry, if we want to be free of suffering, we need to be free of likes and dislikes. If we want to be free of likes and dislikes, we need to be free of ego, because the very nature of ego is to have likes and dislikes. So it's only to the extent to which we subside, but there is real goodness. If we subside, everything subsides. If we rise up, everything rises up. So this final paragraph, Bhagavan is, is uh, summarizing his whole teachings here. The whole problem is our rising as ego. The solution to all problems is to subside, to sink more, sink lower and lower and lower, to, to, to sink deep into the heart and to lose ourselves completely in our own reality, which is pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love. So, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because yes. it sounds odd. It sounds very counterintuitive. What in the world is wrong with likes? I know what the answer is, but nonetheless, it sounds like likes you would think would be permissible in this study because they're only positive. There's nothing negative about a like. No, because we have likes. When we don't get the things we like, we suffer. So likes are as much a cause of suffering as dislikes. And likes and dislikes, they're a pair of opposites. If you like peace, you will dislike war. And then I if war happens, you'll be unhappy. Yeah, if you yeah. like health, you'll dislike sickness. So you, you can't have likes without dislikes. We all know a few people who might be pretty far advanced spiritually. I'm thinking about people pretty far down the road. I would think if they didn't have likes, as well as not having dislikes, they would be quite robotic and that they wouldn't be able to relate to anybody. Is Bhagavan robotic? <laughs> Bhagavan, Bhagavan exemplifies the perfect state of egolessness. Egolessness means freedom. If, 
in the absence of ego, there can be no likes and dislikes. So Bhagavan was absolutely egoless, but he was the most loving and kindest and compassionate. And his love and kindness and compassion were equal to all. He was equally kind to the, to, to the good people and to the bad people. He, because to him, it's all equal. Because he didn't see anyone as other than himself. We see a person and we say, oh, this person is a good person. This person is a bad person. That's our judgment. But he doesn't see us as, as good people or as bad people. He sees us as we actually are, as, as himself, as pure being. In pure being, there's neither goodness nor badness. That helps. So we need, that's why in the previous paragraph, the paragraph we talked about last month, verse 19, Bhagavan said, likes and dislikes are both to be disliked. <laughs> that, that in the previous sentence, he said, however bad others may appear to be, it is not proper to dislike them. Likes and dislikes are both to be disliked. Because likes and dislikes are what causes bondage. If we are free of likes and dislikes, nothing will affect us. Nothing will bind us. As I said, even if we, even if we cast down into hellfire for all eternity, it, it will not affect us. <laughs> There's a Tamil saint, Upper Swamigal. He's one of the, the four great Shaiva saints of Tamil Nadu, Shaiva poet saints of Tamil Nadu. There's a story that he was, um, um, I can't remember the backstory, but for some reason, the, the, um, I think there was some sort of religious dispute or something. So the king, um, who was belonging to some other religion, put him in a, in a lime kiln. Lime kiln is, uh, they raise the temperature to well over a thousand degrees in order to bake the lime for building or for whatever. So he was put in a lime kiln. And when he came out, he was singing a song, saying, under the cool shade of my, my Lord's feet, where the cool south wind, uh, was, cool south wind was uh, blowing, and the sound of the vino, he, it, it's a beautiful uh, verse he sang, that what that story exemplifies is that if our mind is completely surrendered to God, nothing will affect us. Even the most, the worst of all sufferings will appear to us to be the blissful, cool shade of the feet of our Lord. So that's why we need to be free of likes and dislikes. And we cannot be free of likes and dislikes so long as we rise as ego. So the, the sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings is the subsidence of ego subsiding more and more and more. In other words, complete surrender. That is the only solution to all problems. And how can we surrender ourselves? Since the very nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to other things, but to subside by attending to itself, it is only by this Atmavichara, this self-investigation, attending to ourselves, that we can bring about the complete surrender, that we can surrender ourselves completely. And I would assume self-investigation is a process that has no end. Well, it does have an end. When ego, when ego comes to an end, <laughs> there's no one left to investigate. But, yeah, so it does have an end. Um, 
but it doesn't have an end so long as there's ego. Until ego is completely uh, uh, eradicated. So completely eradicated, but it never actually existed. That is when we know ourselves as we actually are, it won't be, but oh, now, now I know myself, now I've attained liberation. It will be clear, but we were never in bondage. There was never any such thing as ego. We were all, because what we actually are is immutable. It can't go from bondage to liberation and then back to liberation again. I mean, it can't go from liberation to bondage and back to liberation again. There no such changes take place. All this bondage and liberation is only for ego. Because ego feels itself to be in bondage, we seek liberation. We need to seek liberation because ego is bondage. But once we, are, once we are free of ego, we will know there never was any bondage. That's why Bhagavan says, liberation is eternal. Even now we are liberated. But because we are looking outwards, we, are, we don't know what we are, so we don't recognize the fact that we are ever free. So the only way to recognize our eternally liberated nature is to look within and see what we actually are and thereby lose ourselves as ego in ourselves as we actually are. Anybody else have questions on any of this that he's uh, been talking about today? Which brings you to the end of this series. I mean, that, that section, correct? Yeah, that, that's the end of Nana. That's the final, uh, this is the, these uh, four sentences of a final sentence, of a final paragraph of Nana. And one last question for me, anyway, because uh, being uh, having a background as being a journalist, I, I do ask a lot of questions and, and run into people who have experiences that I've never had. But I occasionally know of personally, or I know of by secondhand, someone who goes through a period of what they call bliss uh, or awakening or uh, seems to be endless happiness until it does end, until it, the bliss does come to an end. It may last for moments, days, weeks, or months. I don't think I'm aware of anybody who's had bliss for longer than a couple of months. That would not be... That is what, not what we're seeking. That's not... That's not Anything so, that comes and goes is not real. Yeah. Quite simply, Bhagavan says, what is real must always be. Mm -hmm. So any experience that comes and goes is unreal. Because if it comes and goes, it's something other than ourselves. So but but the bliss or the peace or the awareness or whatever we're seeking is what has to be ever existent. So any that is on this on this on Bhagavan's path, we are not seeking experiences. In many spiritual paths, like in yoga, they seek for it, their aim is to have experiences. In the, the aim in Bhagavan's path is to investigate the experiencer and see whether the experience actually exists. The experiencer of all experiences is ego. If we investigate this ego, we find no such thing. In the absence of any experiencers, any experiencer, there can be no experiences. 
So this is going beyond that duality of subject and object, experiencer and experienced, and experiences, what is experienced. Very good, very good. How about if we turn to some questions now, some that have been submitted to you? Well, the, the, the question you sent me a couple of days ago was mm -hmm. from someone who said, I recently listened to a brief discourse from noted Advaitist Rupert Spira. He was responding to a question asked of him, is the world real or just an illusion? His answer surprised me since it is not in keeping with Ramana Maharshi's views. Spira said, the world is absolutely real. Whenever we touch a chair, there is something here, and it could not be here if it were not real. The world is real, and the war in Ukraine is real, and our own mind is something that is real. The images that appear in our mind are not nothing. This is what uh, Rupert Spira said in that video, it seems. And then the question I was asked of, isn't this totally at odds with Ramana's teachings? Yes, it is. Um, I believe the, the, most Spira, the, the most Rupert said about this, I believe the most Rupert said about this is that we have to think about what is real in a special way. And isn't this a reason why followers of Ramana must be careful while reading or listening to the teaching of other Advaitis? It's not so easy to, it, it, sorry, it's so easy to become confused when listening to others talk about the illusion of the world. Yes, th that, that was a question. Yes, absolutely. Um, that is, what does Advaita mean? Advaita means non-duality, but the, the, the origin of the word Advaita, it comes from a saying in the Upanishads, but the nature of Brahman is ekam eva advaitiam. That means one only without a second. So if there are any, if there's any second things, if there are any two things, it's not Advaita. So if we say the world is real, and we are real, then you've got two things that are real. And the world is not just one thing, the world is a multitude of things. So if we say the world is real, we are not just dualists, we are, we are pluralists, we are believing in the, in the, in the reality of, of, of a plurality of things. When, um, in the view of Rupert Spira, this world is real, but when we consider whether something is real or not, first we need to decide what we mean by real. The word real is bandied about so freely. Um, according to the normal day-to-day uh, -day definition of reality, this world is reality. You will see um, uh, philosophers talking about reality, they're just talking, when they say reality, they just mean the world. So the, the general consensus is that the world is real. And anything that we all see is real. And anything that is not seen by everyone, then its reality is questionable. That is a very, um, a very weak and feeble definition of reality. Bhagavan, what Bhagavan means when he talks about reality, what is real is what actually exists. 
Anything that doesn't actually exist, but merely seems to exist, is not real. So, from a relative point of view, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, we can say the, snake, the rope is real, the snake is unreal. Because the snake doesn't actually exist, but the rope actually exists. That's from a, from a mundane perspective. But from a deeper perspective, even the rope isn't real. Why is the rope not real? Why is this world not real? For a very simple reason. As I, as I said, according to Bhagavan, what Bhagavan means when he talks about real is what actually exists. And Bhagavan, well, this actually, it's not, Bhagavan is not the first one to teach this. It's there in, in, um, even in the Bhagavad Gita. There's a, in um, chapter 2, verse 16 of Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna says, there is no existence of what is non-existent. And there is no non-existence of what is existent. What does that mean? What it means is, what ex Bhagavan put it very, very simply. If something exists at one time and not at another time, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. That is what, what Krishna is saying there. If something actually exists, it can never be non-existent. If something is non-existent, it can never actually exist. So whatever it doesn't always exist, doesn't actually exist at all. Whatever seems to exist at one time, not at another time, doesn't actually exist. Why should this be the case? Very, very simply. If, if something is, if something is uh, the intrinsic nature of, of an, if, 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 if it's a, uh, the intrinsic nature of something to be existent, it must always exist. If it, if it doesn't always exist, existence is not its intrinsic nature. Um, th this is sometimes illustrated uh, talking about properties. For example, supposing you have a, 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 a bowl of steaming hot rice. That rice is hot, but is heat the intrinsic nature of rice? No, it is not, because usually rice is cold. It just happens now, it's hot. So. Since heat is not its intrinsic nature, it must have borrowed that heat from something else. So from where did the rice borrow the, its heat? It borrowed its heat from boiling water. And is the water intrinsically hot? No, because the, the water, water is normally uh, not hot. So that boiling water borrowed its heat from something else. It borrowed its heat from a hot pan. So the hot pan... From, is that intrinsically hot? No, it's not, because uh, normally the pan is not hot. So the hot pan borrowed its heat from something else, namely from a fire. Is fire intrinsically hot? Yes. The very nature of fire is to be hot. You cannot have fire that is not hot. So the, the intrinsic nature of fire is hot. So fire is always hot. It can never, you can never have a cold fire. So. That, of course, heat is a property. Existence is not a property. It's something too fundamental to be a property, but it's the nature. Uh, what we have to ask is, is the nature of something intrinsically existent? If it's intrinsically existent, it must always exist. 
It cannot be non-existent. If it's no, if it, if it sometimes it's non-existent, then it's not intrinsically uh, existent. So its existence it is borrowing from something else. So according to Bhagavan, from where does the mind? Well, sorry, from where does the world borrow its existence? It doesn't actually exist. It merely seems to exist. So from where does it borrow its seeming existence? It borrows its seeming existence from ego. Because it's only in the view of ego that the world seems to exist. So the the world, when when it appears, it seems to exist. When it disappears, it no longer seems to exist. So it doesn't actually exist. It, it's only a seeming existence. And, and Bhagavan said, and uh, to to judge whether something is real or not, but the. the that is the definition of real. It, it, it has to exist always. So the first criterion, the first um, lakshana, that means the characteristic of what is real, is it must be eternal. Anything that is not eternal is not real. The second uh, um, characteristic or lakshana of what is real is it must be um, unchanging. Because if something changes, it's one thing at one time and another thing at another time. Uh, for example, you you have a um, an apple grows on a tree. It starts off there's just a flower, and then from that flower, this uh, it, the, the base of a flower swells up and it becomes an apple. It's undergoing change. So, what was previously a flower has now become an apple. And if you if it falls from the tree, if no, it will either be eaten and will become be digested and will become part of the body of some animal, human or non-human, or it will lie on the ground and be, uh, and rot away. So that apple is not it it's it's not because it's undergoing change. It's not permanent. So anything that undergoes change is not permanent. So the, whatever is real must be eternal. It must be unchanging. And the third and most important definition, it must be self-shining. Self-shining means it must know itself by its own light of awareness. It shouldn't depend on anything else to be known. So is this world self-shining? No, it certainly isn't. The world is known only because we know it. It's not shining by its own light. It's shining by the light of the mind. So it's only in the, in the view of the mind or ego that the world seems to exist. So the world is not eternal, it's not unchanging, and it's not self-shining. So by no stretch of the imagination is the world real in any sense whatsoever. So the world borrows its seeming existence, its seeming reality from ego. So does ego actually exist? No, because Ego rises in waking and dream, it subsides in sleep. In sleep, there's no ego at all. So ego is not intrinsically existent. It's something that comes into existence and ceases to exist. So even ego doesn't uh, actually exist. The world borrows its existence from ego, in whose view it seems to exist. Ego, from where does ego borrow its existence? Ego borrows its existence from I am. I am. Uh, that is our, I am, it means I, I exist. Our existence, our being, is what is denoted by the word I am. I am also denotes our awareness, because only what is aware can, be a, can know its own existence as I am. So I am is such it. So it is from 
Satchit from I am, from that pure existence awareness, but we borrow our semi existence. So, what is real is only Satchit. But one thing that exists and shines in all three states is,、um, is I am. That is, in waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person. In sleep, we're not aware of ourselves as I am this person, but we're still aware of our. Existent, we're still aware of ourselves as I am. So I、oh、am、God. alone is what is real. Even ego, not only does ego、uh, come into existence and cease to exist, it also doesn't shine by its own light. It borrows the light of Satchit to know itself and to know other things. So ego, so not only is the world unreal, but it borrows its seeming reality from ego, which is itself unreal. What is real is only our own being, our, our fundamental awareness. I am. That alone is what is real. We、uh, have two、yes. people with questions.、Uh, so Ron can go first, and then Vish. You you still have a question too. So Ron and then Vish, go ahead. Okay.、Um, I'm just wondering. Okay, according to Bhagavan's definition of what's real. That would make Rupert's definition, which is different, to me, it doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it two different ways of seeing things. I mean, there's more than one way of seeing things. And for Rupert's right for Rupert, and Bhagavan is right for Bhagavan. But I'm just wondering, like, are you saying that Rupert's definition is wrong, or、yes. it just doesn't agree with Bhagavan? No, Bhagavan's what the definition Bhagavan gives us. If we think about it, it's a very reasonable definition. That is, do you do you understand what I said about what is? What actually exists must be intrinsically existent. Anything that is not intrinsically existent is borrowing its existence from something else. So it's not; yeah, it doesn't have any existence of its own. I know what you're saying, but where did those parameters of defining what's real? Where did they come from? That they had a, that that, you know? that comes from the brain. That that is whatever. Whatever doesn't always exist it is not intrinsically existing. So it's borrowing its existence from something else. So it has no independent existence. So it cannot be real because it it's when it seems to exist, it seems to be real. But when it ceases to exist, it no longer seems to be real. So it is it to give it any. Then, what meaning does reality have? Then reality is,、uh, becomes a meaningless word. If you say, if you say, but, but things that seem to exist are real, then you can say the snake is real. You can say dreams, what you experience in a dream is real. Then,、yeah. th- then there's not, nothing. Then nothing becomes unreal. You, okay, the, if you, you know, use the terms real and unreal, you have to give a meaning to them. Otherwise, if if everything is Uh, real, then why do you use the word、uh, real and unreal? When when we are discussing a, a concept, what is real, what is unreal? We have to. If you say everything is real, 
okay, then, then, then the discussion about reality or unreality becomes meaningless. But is everything real? Does everything actually exist? Can we say that something that doesn't actually exist, but merely seems to exist? Can we say the snake is real? No, it's not going to bite you because it's just a rope. What it, it is not a snake at all. From, from Bhagavan's view, from that exalted view yes. that Bhagavan had, yes. he saw things this way. I mean, yes. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. But for me, it's just a concept. I'm not seeing things that way. But, but all we can say about this world is it seems to exist. It seems to be real, but the question is, yes, no, we all agree this world seems to exist. This, it seems to be real, but is it actually real? Does it actually exist? No, when, we are, when we are dreaming, so long as we're dreaming, the dream world seems to be real. But as soon as we wake up, we recognize it. it it was just a mental fabrication. Do you think that the things you saw in your dream were real? No. Well, at the time, they seemed real. Like you they said, seemed real. Seems that, real. That's the distinction. This is the fundamental thing. We are distinguishing appearance from reality. Reality okay, is but... what actually exists. Appearance is what seems to exist. Ru and see what see Rupert's reasoning. He says, um, uh, "The world is absolutely real. How the world? How can the world be absolutely real?" I mean, he's really going overboard when he says that. And then he says he gives an argument. He says, "Whenever we touch a chair, there is something here, and it could not be here if it were not real." Then everything he, everything we touch in a dream is real. So is Rupert going to say that all that we experience in a dream is real? Because when I, when we're dreaming, it seems just as real as this. If we if we touch a chair in dream, we can feel it. It's something. Uh, it seems solid, and we can say, "Oh, if this chair wasn't actually here, uh, we couldn't touch it." But then next minute we wake up. Is the, where's the chair? Where is it gone? It was just a thought. It was a mental fabrication. So, it's, so if we say the world is real, then we, we, we lose the, the term real loses its meaning. Why don't we move on to Vish and, and come back to this if time allows? But, uh, right. And Vish, before we get to you, I just want to say parenthetically, that I've been paying special attention to this ever since this question came up, Michael. I've had it on my notebook here for a couple of weeks from somebody. And by paying special attention means that I've been observing more carefully my nocturnal dreams. And twice yes. in the last week, I've come, including last night, I've come across dreams that left me with the visceral feeling that they were real once I awakened. Last night, I was dreaming I was on a college campus going down a rail line next to a cliff and peering over, peering out my window over the cliff, which seemed to be right there, seemed to be about a 3,000 foot drop to the farmland down below. And it gave me a feeling anybody has if they walk yeah. up to the edge of a yeah. cliff. And I felt it. It actually awakened me. It yeah. was clearly a dream. 
but every bit of it seemed and felt real in the moment. Yeah. And so, so what you're saying is if it if there's if if anything is not intrinsically different, meaning it doesn't borrow anything from anything else for its own existence, then it cannot be real and the world mm -hmm. isn't real as an example of that, which is yeah. a huge example. Uh, I want to get to Vish because I promised him I, he could. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. So the question I have is that uh, I have read a couple of interviews where uh, Bhagavan will be asked the question and then he would uh, point to the person uh, to kind of actually inquire and find the true answer all by uh, themselves, right? Because in pretty much in all of his messages will be like, oh, you go do it. You try to find it out. You yeah. don't follow what I'm saying or you don't follow other people. The, because the true nature is to actually investigate all for actually yourself, right? That, and then, I mean, I am, uh, I am, I'm asking this. Okay, more from uh, my actions, where I have uh, much more interest in sometimes in all these arguments about uh, who said what and how to interpret that, or uh, Michael James is you know saying it in this way, or you know Rupert is actually interpreting in this way, and then I have more interest in uh, listening to podcasts or okay youtube videos and all that uh, than uh, doing uh, self-inquiry i mean i may spend like you know 10 percent of my time doing self-inquiry but then all my uh, vasanas are towards actually engaging in all these kinds of arguments which are more semantic sometimes which are more so do you have an advice for some of us on how to shift the attention from all these arguments, from all these concepts and all the semantics. And because I think all of us have enough knowledge of self-inquiry to pursue it. But then that pursuit is beset by the pull of all of these, right? I mean, where our ego is trying to have the perfect knowledge of the path and all the people who are following the path then on pursuing the path then on the walking like we got all the manuals we got all the guides how to climb the mountain and we spent all the time arguing about oh this this guide is great i mean this pamphlet is great and the, this guide who is following this pamphlet is the most awesomest guy and uh, we are putting all our energies on collecting all the pamphlets and uh, and then listening to all the guides than on real uh, walking up the mountain because as soon as we reach the top of the mountain all our questions are answered but then we love to attend the satsangs and all that instead of just yeah. sitting quiet and pursuing self-inquiry so do you have a any thoughts on how to shift the mind's focus yes. to, to well, throw away all the guides, throw away all the pamphlets and put more effort on the path? Um, no, it's not necessary to throw away. Um, if you're going on a journey, if you've got a good, reliable map, it, you shouldn't throw away the map before you start on the journey. As you go on the journey, the map becomes more and more, more, and more meaningful. But if you just sit at home studying the map, you're not going to get anywhere. 
So the Bhagavan's teachings are 100% practical. If we understand what Bhagavan's teachings are about, they're all pointing us towards this simple practice. They're turning, directing our attention back towards ourselves. If we are reading Bhagavan's teachings and not putting them into practice, we are not reading them properly. If we read carefully, we are, that is merely reading is called sravana. If you just read things without thinking about it, without trying to understand why is it said like this? Okay, Bhagavan has said the world is unreal. Why does he say so? Firstly, what is the what is the 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 whatever reason for saying the world is unreal, and what is the benefit of saying the un world is unreal? Why does Bhagavan emphasize so much that the world is unreal? But the world appears only in the view of ego. There must be a practical significance, because Bhagavan doesn't teach anything that is not of practical significance. So merely reading, we will get a very superficial understanding. We, to get to deepen our understanding, we need to think about it. We need to make connections between what Bhagavan said here, what he said there, why he says so, how this is related to the practice. So we need to we need to understand it by our own thinking. But most important of all, we need to put it into practice. And if we're reading Bhagavan properly, if we're thinking about his teachings properly, our attention will automatically go to ourselves. Supposing you go to a lecture, so supposing it's a lecture on um, on quantum mechanics, say, if you're not attending to the subject matter that is being talked about, you will sit there for two hours and you won't grasp anything. You have to actually attend to what are they talking about? They're talking about quantum foam or this or that. You've got to, you've got to pay attention to what the, the subject matter that is being talked about. So what is the subject matter that Bhagavan's teachings are all about? It's about I. So if we are not attending to I, we are reading Bhagavan's teachings extremely superficially. We're missing the point of them. So we are not, the Bhagavan gave his teachings for a purpose, not just to be a nice philosophy, not just to have, um, to have debates uh, and discussions on the internet or on YouTube or Zoom or anything like that. All these are for practical purposes. So if we are not applying in practice what we are, what we are studying, why are we studying it? Is, is it just a game? No, what Bhagavan says is very serious. We are in this world. Now we, have, we, we take this body to be I. This body is getting older day by day. One day, sooner or later, this body is going to become sick, it's going to become, and it's going to die. So are we here just for entertainment? There must be a purpose. Bhagavan often used to say, Nibanda Veleepa. Attend to that for which you've come. What we've come to this world for is to know what we actually are. So our bandavele, the work for which we've come, is to know ourselves. So what we have to attend to is to ourselves. All of Bhagavan's teachings are all pointing at ourselves. So if we're not if we're not attending to our, his teachings, we are not really reading his teachings. We're not really thinking about them. And another thing. Bhagavan's teachings, not only is it um, pointing us in the right direction, he's also explaining to us why we should attend to ourselves. 
There's not an iota of happiness to be attained in any other thing. Why does our mind go out towards other things? Because we wrongly believe happiness lies in those other things. We wrongly believe that if I can um, win an argument um, uh, about whether the world is real or not, then I'll be happy. If we believe like that, we're going to be miserable because you can never... People will believe what they want to believe. If, supposing I and Rupert Spira were to debate this, on, uh, were to have a Zoom meeting and to debate this, do you think he would convince me or I would convince him? No, because he believes what he wants to believe. I believe what I want to believe, which is what Bhagavan tells us. So um, it, you, we can't, there's no point in arguing about these things. Why we discuss these things is for our own benefit. So there are a number of people here in this meeting today. Each one of us has to decide for ourselves. Do we are we willing to accept what Bhagavan says or not? It's up to us. No, no, Bhagavan will not force anyone to believe anything they don't want to believe. But the choice is ours. Bhagavan taught us what he taught us. He taught us for our benefit. If we are wise we will believe him. And believing him, we are not just believing arbitrary things. He gives us good reasons to believe this. Very, very clear and logical reasons he gives. And the more we put this into practice, the more clearly we will see the reason, how blindingly obvious that reason is. So we are not just blindly following Bhagavan's path. This is a clear, rational, uh, logical his teachings are clear, rational, and logical, analyzing our own actual experience. He, but there's nothing Bhagavan asks us to believe, but we cannot find out for ourselves. So we, we are not just blindly believing something, and we are not just accepting it on faith. Bhagavan says, do not believe what you do not know. So we, Bhagavan gives us these teachings so we can verify for ourselves, not just believe what Bhagavan says. What is the use of believing what Bhagavan says if we don't put it into practice, if we don't um, uh, 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 find it out for ourselves? So, uh, Michael, the question I had was uh, how, to, how to kind of uh, convince the mind to put, more effort, to put more of the bandwidth into the practice? Like, how to increase the... the, the how to increase actually allocated time on Nidityasana uh, rather than uh, Shravana? <laughs> okay. Three things Shravana, Manana, Nidityasana. These three are all necessary. The quantity is less important than the quality. So that's why I say when we read Bhagavan, we shouldn't just be reading on the surface. We should be. We should be thinking why Bhagavan is said, what is Bhagavan pointing at? He's pointing at I. So the, the very reading of Bhagavan's words should turn our attention back to ourselves. If it's quality reading, if it's quality sravana, likewise with manana, if it's quality manana, it will be turning our attention back to ourselves. And the nidityasana, that also, if we are, it, we should try to be self-attentive as much as possible. Whatever else we're doing, we should try to be self-attentive. But that is the quantity. But the quality also matters. We need. We are trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper into ourselves. So, the the 
So, to a certain extent, reading Bhagavan's teachings will, will kindle in our heart love to attend to ourselves. To a greater extent, doing the manana will kindle that love. But the, the most powerful means to kindle that love is the actual practice. The more we attend to ourselves, the more the love to attend to ourselves will grow. The very fact that we're here talking about this subject means we're already interested in this subject. But our interest is still fairly superficial. If we want the interest to deepen, if we want it to become an all-consuming passion to know who am I, we need to be attending to ourselves more and more and more and more. This should be the sole purpose of our life. Nothing else in life matters as much as this. So the, the, to the extent to which we practice, to that extent, our love will increase. And the love is the key. As Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti means that love. Why are we, why, you, you say your mind is dwelling on other things, you're, you like to watch videos or to read things or to discuss with people. Um, why your mind uh, goes, is going outwards? Because it's got such a, a strong liking to go outwards. It will go within only to the extent to which you have love to go within. All the purpose of the Sravana Manana is to support our practice, which alone will create that love. I mean, it will alone cultivate the love. There has to be some love to start with, or we wouldn't even start on this path. We'd be going and watching football or cricket or uh, mm. discussing politics or something. The fact that we're here discussing this subject means we already have some interest in this subject. We are already interested to know who am I. But we have but, to build on this. And the way to build on it is by practice, supported by Sravana Manana. I've really appreciated everything you've said on this topic, but I do believe there's been one element that's been missed. And um, I never thought of it until a teacher of mine brought it to my direct attention. Uh, I would raise contradictory ideas that I heard from other people or read from other books uh, to my teacher. And um, he would field them. And then finally, he got tired of fielding all of these. And he simply said to me, Ted, you're missing the point because what you're doing is bringing added confusion and misunderstanding to yourself by listening to too many different voices on the same topic. And yeah. that's, that's I think, at the root of the question this questioner sent to you was, I listened to Ramana Maharshi, I go inward looking for more self-discovery, and I listen to other people on the same topic. But the other people may very well have contradictory information that yes. only confuses. It only Isn't confuses, that, yes, yes. Does that play much of a role in what we're all discussing here? Absolutely. That is, we have to be one-pointed. Ekagrata, one-pointedness of mind, is the key to any, whatever be the spiritual path you're following, you need to be one-pointed. The, the old analogy is given. If you want to, if you want to find water, you have to dig a well. Don't dig five feet here, five feet there, five feet there, and find no water anywhere. Dig in one place and decide what you think is the best place to dig, and go on digging until you find water. 
that the, the the reverse of that is me. I spent thirty years digging one hundred and fifty-two wells, yeah. or maybe it was two hundred and fifty-two wells. That is and the I, nature of the mind. The mind loves the variety, but if we and want I justified to, it by saying just that the, the yeah. variety of ideas helps you to better understand where the truth may no, be. No, no, it doesn't. It very if if all those ideas are pointing in the same direction. But when there are count contrary arguments, that is, Rupert Spearer is directly uh, arguing against Bhagavan's teachings. He's directly right. arguing against the Dvaita, because if you say, that is, the Dvaita said there's only one, there aren't two. So if there's only one, there can only be one thing that is real. If you say many things are real, then it's not a Dvaita. That is one of the principal um, uh, contentions of Advaita is what is called Vivartavada. Vivarta means illusory appearance. That is, if you say there's only one, then how do you account for the multiplicity? If the multiplicity is real, then there's not only one, there's a multiplicity. You have to you have to be willing to accept that the multiplicity is a mere appearance. It is not real. If you say it's real, then you are not an Advaitin. It's as simple as that. So uh, are we interested in the path of Advaita or are we interested in some some path of uh, in, 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 do we do we want to live in a universe full of many real things. If that's what we want, fine, we've got the whole universe there. But is it all real? That is what we need to ask ourselves if we want to go deeper within. Otherwise, yeah. if you accept the mere appearances as real, how can you ever find what is actually real? How can you find the reality behind the appearance if you take the appearance to be real? Rupert Spearer and many other people, they are satisfied with the appearance. They are content to take the appearances as real. Fine, let them. I mean, we've no argument with anyone. If anyone wants to take it real, it's nothing to us. But if we want to find out the reality behind this appearance, we shouldn't take the appearance to be real or we'll never look behind it. Very good. Very, very good. Thank you. Uh, just a P. Oh, yes. Uh, we have Jer, Jer, Jer coming up with a question here. Go ahead. First, first, thank you so much. Um, what a beautiful, beautiful uh, sharing of wisdom. Um, I, I have several questions, but I think I'll just focus on this one. Um, so the process is all in terms of going deep, deep, deep and living the practice. Um, so my question is more about the, uh, the practicality of that. So um, is... Um, Ramana Maharashi emphasizing um, meditation as part of the self-inquiry and the other part I was thinking in terms of that self-inquiry is how do I get better at asking the right like the good questions that will take go deeper rather than the ones that tend to keep me more into the illusion of reality um so I so those are two questions really about the process okay. of the self-inquiry. Okay. What does meditation mean? Meditation means thinking. It's a basic meaning of meditate, but in 
It means fixing the mind on one thing. That is, in any meditation, you're trying to keep your attention on one yeah. thing. But what should we attend to? What, what do we want to know? If we want to know who am I, what should we attend to? We should attend to I. So this, this practice of self-investigation is nothing but attending to I, attending to ourself. So in that sense, yes, it is meditation. Bhagavan sometimes described it as Swarupa Dhyana. Swarupa Dhyana means meditation on our own real nature. Meditation on what we actually are. It is not meditation in the sense of meditating on any object. Because objects are things other than ourselves. If we want to know about other things, we meditate on them. But if we want to know who am I, there's only one thing we should meditate on. I and I alone. If you want to know something, if you want to, if you want to see what's written in a book, you don't look in the other direction. You open the book and look inside. If you want to see what you actually are, you need to look inside yourself. So in that sense, yes, it is a meditation. But it's not just a... Many meditations are just a, a concentration exercise. You're trying to keep your mind fixed on one thing. In this also, we're trying to keep our mind fixed on ourselves, but for a purpose. We are, this is an investigation. We are trying to find out what we actually are. We are looking at ourselves in order to see what we actually are. So it's not merely a matter of, of just looking at something. It, we're looking for a purpose to see what we actually are. Looking, obviously, I'm not talking about looking with our eyes. When we use these words, we, they, we, they're used metaphorically because we obviously are not an object that can be seen. When we're neither a, a, a physical object that can be seen with the physical eyes nor a, a mental object that can be seen with the mental eyes. We are something far, far deeper. So we need to look deep within ourselves. Because we need to turn our entire attention within to see what we actually are. So this is both a meditation and an investigation. You can say it's an investigative meditation or a meditative investigation, whichever way you want. And you asked one other question. I didn't quite catch that. First, thank you. Thank you. So Have much. I answered that question clearly? Yeah, enough? very much so. I mean, mm. I've been meditating for years, th first through the Buddhist yeah. um, kind of filter, but now much more from the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from India yeah. and a teacher we have in India. The, um, and I, I find, um, yeah, just I'm wanting to know more about the meditative process for myself and how, uh, um, and how to use it to to go deeper. The the second question was about um, asking the questions because um, it's it's breaking the bonds of asking the questions from a certain filter of reality, and then asking the questions that I don't. Anyways, asking the questions in a different way, like the way you explained the the boiling the hot rice. It was like ask, like deducting it down, like really going more and more to the core in a way that I can ask those questions, even in the most mundane situations, right. as a, as an inquiry, as a way of self inquiry. So that was the, the, about question asking. 
the practice of question asking. Okay. Um, firstly, we need to decide what our aim is. That is, if we, if um, if our aim is to know ourselves, our questions will all be questions that are related to knowing ourselves. So it's a matter of having. This is again what um, what uh, what Ted was alluding to: the one-pointedness. If we want to progress on this path, we've got to be one-pointed. We've got to have a one-pointed aim. So we need to clearly decide what our aim is. If we, if our, if we understand why Bhagavan says the only thing that is required is to know ourselves, because by knowing ourselves, we thereby eradicate ego and solve all problems. If we understand and are convinced that the sole aim of our life is to know ourselves. And knowing ourselves means just being ourselves. Then we've got to focus. Then whatever questions, then we won't start asking irrelevant questions. If you read, there's a big book, you may have come across it, Talks with Ramana Maharshi. And there are a number of other smaller books of dialogues. If you, pay, if you read those books and pay close attention, you will see that most of the people who come and ask questions, they're very superficial. They will ask, they, many of them will come with a list of questions in their mind. And they ask the first question, they get an answer. And instead of going deeper, following, that, following on on that subject, asking deeper questions, they jump on to their next question. So the questioning is superficial because they don't have a single aim. They, they don't come with the sole aim of knowing who am I. But there was one disciple I mean, there were many good disciples. I'm just talking about one particular disciple. His name was Shiva Prakasam Pillai. He came to Bhagavan in um, about 1900 or 1901, thereabouts. And he didn't know anything about Bhagavan, except this was some young boy who was sitting uh, seemingly absorbed in meditation. But he felt this is the person who can answer his questions. And the first question he asked Bhagavan was, Swami, who am I? So you can see from that first question what his aim is. His aim is to know what he is. So he is the perfect disciple for the perfect guru because the guru came to teach this path of investigating who am I. And the first question he asked was who am I? And all the subsequent questions he asked were all related to that. They were all uh, connected with actually fi how to find out who am I. So. That is the true. That is a true disciple, a, someone who has a single aim, and comes to the right person to who is who can who can point them in the right direction. So, if we have a single aim, if our aim is just to know ourselves, to eradicate ego, to surrender ourselves, all the questions we ask will naturally be questions that are relevant to this subject and will help us to go deeper and deeper into it uh, and get, gain a deeper and deeper understanding of this subject. Is, is that a clear answer? Very clear. Very clear. Right. Thank you. Right. So, uh, Michael, yeah. would you like to ask the questions you had sent me yes. this morning? Yes, I, I, I did want to ask uh, just a, a few questions. Mainly about Bhagavan's um, death experience. Um, 
I, I, I sent these over to Michael uh, uh, yesterday evening. And um, so, so I'll just read them. And then if, if Michael has time to answer them, that's great. If yeah. we need to move on, that's fine. Yeah, um, if you read, the, the, but they're all good questions. They're useful okay. questions. If you read one by one, I'll answer them one by one. I think that's best. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, um, did Bhagavan have two death experiences? And is the second one documented in any of the, in any of uh, Bhagavan's literature, the, the written works? Okay. It depends what we mean by death experience, but the first death experience he had in, in Madurai, that was when an intense fear of death came to him, and that intense fear of his response to that fear of death was to turn his attention within to see whether that, that the body is going to die, but when the body dies, what happens to I? That is, he had already understood some years earlier, his, uh, uh, when he, it's about four years earlier, when he was 12 years old, his father passed away. And he was at that time in some other town, so he was brought to, to, to where his father passed away. And he saw his father lying there. That is, they put a bench and the body of his father was lying there, and everyone was weeping. He was wondering. Father is lying here, and everyone is weeping, saying he's gone. So he was, he was puzzled, and seeing the look on his face, one of his older relatives asked him, what is it you're thinking about? He, he said, everyone says father has gone, but father is lying here. And that relative said to him, your, um, if this was your father, wouldn't he greet you with love? And uh, But see, he's just lying here. He's not responding to you. So he has gone. Then he thought, Bhagavan thought to himself, yes, I clearly know the I in me, but the, my, the I in my father's body has gone. So my father has gone. My father, that is, he understood the di distinction at that time, but he clearly understood the distinction between I and the body. But it wasn't sufficiently clear. But he, he had a clear uh, conceptual understanding that I is something different from a body. So when that intense fear of death came to him, his response was, when this, he didn't even think this, but as later when he explained it, he explained it in words as if he thought it, but he did also say, it, all this just flashed. It, it wasn't, it, there was no reasoning behind it, but to, to make it intelligible to us, he put it in words to make it sound like reasoning. Yes, this body is dead. It's going to be taken to the cremation ground and burnt. But with the death of this body, am I also dead? Am I also going to die? So he looked within himself and saw what he actually was. That all happened in, a, in an instant. So that is what is generally called his death experience. However, in, in many accounts that are written about this, it is said that he laid down and enacted death. That is, that is not correct. He did lie down. That is, as soon as that period of death came, he laid down and he just lay in a, in a flat position and this investigation went on within. But his attention went in so keenly that if, if you keenly attend to anything, we have a saying in English, it took my breath away. That is, if, you're, if you hear some shocking news or anything that grasps your attention, 
it, you stop breathing. Likewise, if you go deep within, if you turn your attention keenly within, breathing will stop. And if you turn your attention within deep, keenly enough, not only breathing, everything will stop. Heartbeat, everything stopped. So his body was actually lifeless for 20 minutes. Because it was the divine plan, but that there was a mission for that body, after 20 minutes, the life came back to that body. Um, so, but, but this Bhagavan told later, the body was actually dead for about 20 minutes. Um, many years later, that was in 1896, when Bhagavan was 16 years old. About 16 years later, when he was 32, in 1912, one day, he and a devotee called um, Parani Swami went to, um, there's a, a temple on the uh, north uh, east uh, uh, foot of the hill um, called Pachayaman uh, Coil. Um, they went there and there's a tank there. They had a tank means a pond. They had they bathed in the pond and they were returning back to Virupakshi cave. As they were returning back, it was quite hot sun. At a certain point when they were passing, a, a, there's a big rock there called Amai Parai. Amai Parai means tortoise rock. When they came to tortoise rock, Bhagavan leant against the rock and his body became lifeless. And Parani Swami saw that. He saw Bhagavan just, his body just became lifeless. So he embraced Bhagavan and he was weeping. And after about 15, 20 minutes, the life suddenly came back to Bhagavan's body. And Bhagavan said, let us continue. Because this was witnessed by Parani Swami, Parani Swami naturally told others. So this was recorded some many years later, in 1930 or 31 or so, the first full-length biography of Bhagavan came out in English. It was a book called Self-Realization. That was the first book-length biography of Bhagavan that was written. Um, so uh, Bhivanyar Narasimha Swami, who, the author of that book, he gathered all the stories he could. Not all the stories he gathered were entirely accurate, but whatever stories he could gather, he, he gathered and he wrote them in this book. So he referred to this as Bhagavan's second death experience. Not that Bhagavan had the same fear of death, it's not like that. The body died a second time. So that's why he referred to it as the second death experience. This book was published by the ashram in about 1931. After that, um, uh, Sudananda Bharati wrote a, a Tamil biography, which is based on the English one. And then Krishna Bhikshu came and wrote a Telugu biography based on the English one. So they were all, in all these books, they were writing the same thing. This is the second death experience. Bhagavan didn't correct this for many years, but in the last few years of his life, Bhagavan slowly, slowly started pointing out errors in those biographies. And one of the errors he pointed out, he one day he said, this, someone was asking him about this, his second death experience, and Bhagavan said, it wasn't the second death experience, it was the last death experience. And then Bhagavan said, between that first time it happened in Madurai, when the body became lifeless, it happened many times between then and that incident with Parani Swami. Many times his body just became lifeless for 15, 20 minutes, and then the life came back to it for no apparent reason. 
but nobody else witnessed that because nobody else witnessed that. Bhagavan didn't say anything about this to anyone. Um, so Bhagavan said it wasn't the second death experience, it was the last one. It happened several times. Um, what is the significance of this? We need not give any significance. This is just a fact. It just happened like this. Um, the first time it happened, it happened because of the keenness with which his mind went within. Later times, it happened because it happened. That's all we can say about it. So it did happen. Um, so, and but, it, but one thing that it is many biographies, even Bhimi Narasimha Swami, who wrote about this second death experience, he referred to it as second death experience, misleadingly about the first death experience, he said Bhagavan enacted death. Bhagavan said it, it later clarified it wasn't enacted. It was actually, the, the body was actually dead. What he did was he lay down. Because of the attention went in so keenly, the body became lifeless. He refers to this in Uludunapadu, I think in uh, indirect, I mean, not saying it was his experience, but he refers to it indirectly in um, what, he, what Bhagavan says in verse 28 of Uludunapadu is, um, like sinking, wanting to see something that has fallen in water, sinking within, restraining speech and breath, by a sharpened mind, it is necessary to know the place where the rising ego rises. Uh, here he uses a term, pechu muchu adiki kondu. That, that means restraining speech and breath. Many people misunderstand this to mean, but we have to try and control our breath. That is not what Bhagavan meant, because he said, Kunda uh, Matial. Kunda Matial means with a, with a keen, sharp mind. What he implies by that is a mind that is keenly, one pointedly focused on oneself. Because what is it? We are trying, he says, it's necessary to know the place where the rising ego rises. The place where the rising ego rises is ourself. So the, the the implication is that we need to keenly focus our attention on ourselves. By that self-attention, the speech and breath will be automatically restrained. And then the next verse is verse 29. In verse 29, later he connected all 40 verses, all 42 verses together as a single verse by adding extra syllables or extra one and a half metrical feet at the end of each verse to link it to the next verse. And the, the, in verse, um, I think it's in verse 29, he, the, um, the term he used was, um, yes, uh, what he says in verse 29 is, not saying I, I by mouth, investigating with an inward sinking mind where I rises alone is the path of knowledge. Instead, thinking, I am not this, I am that, is an aid, but is it investigation? So, in this first sentence, not saying I by mouth, before that he added an adverbial clause, which is, pinnum pole tindu udalum. That means leaving the body like a corpse, not saying I by mouth, investigating by an inward sinking mind where I rises alone is the path of knowledge. This is exactly what he did. He left the body like a corpse. That is, he was so intent 
on looking within to see who he was. Not only, but he looked within. Not only did he um, did his speech and breath stop. Even the heartbeat stopped. Everything stopped. So he literally left the body like a corpse, leaving the body like a corpse. In practical terms, what it means is. When the, when the body is a corpse, we are completely unconnected with it. We have no connection with the corpse. That is when we seem to be connected with this body, so long as it is alive. As soon as the body is dead, our connection with it ceases. So we need to we need to uh, leave the body just like we would leave a corpse. We need to separate ourselves from it. That means our entire attention needs to go within, not to attend to the body. So, and if we do so, the body will actually cease to, uh, the breathing will stop, the heartbeat will stop, everything will stop. This is what happened in Bhagavan's case. So that is what he, um, so it, 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 Bhagavan wasn't just enacting death. He actually, the body actually died. And it happened several times after that. The last time was on uh, 1912, that incident with uh, Parani Swami. So that's the first of your questions, Michael. Yes, so, so that more? actually leads... Yes, thank you, Michael. Yes. So that actually is, is a good lead to the uh, second question, which means, which, which, which is, is, I mean, even just from the first death experience, does, I mean, is, is that in any way similar to the near-death experiences that many people have had, had and have, you know, a, a, a recounted saying they, they they've they've left their body they've seen a light they they, they they've moved on they you know they saw it, yes it, i understand exactly what you mean uh -huh. no it is not there's a fundamental difference because people who report near-death experiences they ex they re they they come back and they uh tell about whatever phenomena they experience they may see a light they may see the, the gates of heaven some people see some people they may see um they may see their body on the operating theater and the uh, on, on the bed or on the uh, operating table and the doctor's trying to revive the body and they may see from uh, as if they're looking from above looking down on the body sometimes they may be aware of conversations that are going on in the next door room or something so all sorts of things they come back and their experiences are phenomenal experiences. That is, they experience phenomena of one kind or another. Of course, it varies from person to person, but they all come back and report something. Bhagavan didn't experience any phenomena at all. Phenomena are all objects. Bhagavan, what Bhagavan experienced is the reality of the subject. When we know the reality of the subject, the subject, namely ego, ceases to exist. And along with the cessation of the subject, all objects cease to exist. Even to say that Bhagavan's body was dead for 20 minutes and then came back to life, that is true from our perspective, not from Bhagavan's perspective. From Bhagavan's perspective, when the mind goes within, we, we lose ourselves completely in the ocean of pure awareness and nothing else. I mean, that is, we are swallowed by the light of pure awareness, let's say. So there's no phenomena appear after that at all, because phenomena appear only in the view of ego. So all those other near-death experiences are experiences of phenomena had by ego. Bhagavan uh, was 
experience, if we call it as such, uh, is in the opposite direction. It's not going out to experience something, it's going in to experience the reality of the experiencer. When we know, when we know the reality of the experiencer, we, we, we can't know our own reality as an object. We can know our own reality only by being ourselves. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadeshundia, Tanai iritle tanai aridlam. Being oneself alone is knowing oneself. That is, being as we actually are alone is knowing ourselves as we actually are. So Bhagavan's exper experience wasn't an experience of one thing experiencing another. It was a state of pure awareness, of being aware of himself as he actually is. So it's, it's complete opposite of the near-death experience. Is that a clear answer? Do you understand the distinction I'm making? Absolutely, yes. And, and which which is going to lead to the third question, if, yes. uh, if, if their time permits, and I hope yes, this does not yes, open please, up Pandora's box. It's good questions. Yeah, I, I, I definitely yeah. hope it does not open up Pandora's yeah. box, it, it, where, you know, it's just a, a million other questions, but it, yeah. it's... Um, and it's and I and I raised this question because I was on a spiritual path for a number of years. Um, that um, one of the um, one of the uh, practices was to pray for protection because there are dark and hostile forces that are trying to take you away from a spiritual path. Yeah. And and I'm not asking this in any negative way, but mm -hmm. in and, and I did not read that book, the, the self-realization book, the, the biography. Um, yeah. Um, but it, the, I, I did re recently read it in the um, in Arunachala Ramana, Eternal Ocean of Grace. Uh, it's um, uh, it's a seven book compilation, book one biography, and it's on page thirty. Bhagavan's account of his first death, death experience. He did say it appeared to be like an avasam. A V E S A M. I, I'm not familiar with that word. Or, and then he continues, or some spirit possessing me that changed my mental attitude and habits. And that was during the, that was, you know, after that first death experience. And I'm just wondering if in Advaita, it's just one, it's just I, but yeah. yet. Bhagavan, and, and, and this may be a, a misinterpretation or mistranslation, Bhagavan did say that there was something that possessed me, something other. I mean, it, 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 I, mean I don't want to get too lingual, right. or, oh, okay. but I, I, how, I, how could we clarify that? Okay, yes, yes, yes. This is a good question because many people, this is something that confuses many people. The word he used is avesam. Avesam is a Sanskrit word, but the, the literal meaning of Arvesam is, um, is the, or the original meaning of Arvesam is entering. Um, like if you, if you have a new, if you're entering a new house, they, in India they have a, um, they have a ceremony called Graha Pravesam, that is entering the house. So, uh, Arvesam is related to that word prabesam. It means entering. So entering or taking possession. If you if you if you take a new house on rent or you, you you buy a new house, when you enter it, you enter it and you take possession of it. That is called avesam. Avesam also is used to mean a, a state in which you're possessed by some spirit or something. Uh, so um, that that's why the Bhagavan wouldn't have said 
when when Bhagavan said it, what he said in Laikanabesam, he wouldn't have said some spirit possessing me, but translator has tried to explain it, or the person who recorded it tried to explain what is meant by Abesam, some spirit possessing me. That is not what Bhagavan meant. To understand what Bhagavan meant by this Abesam, firstly we need to understand the context. Bhagavan had explained that at that time of that death experience, ego is completely annihilated. So then people naturally question, then Bhagavan, how are you, if there's no ego, how are you doing all these actions? How are you going about uh, answering questions and all these things? Bhagavan, Bhagavan said, the, when ego is annihilated, grace takes over. So the whole grace doesn't mean some other thing. Grace is, uh, is another word for our own real nature. Bhagavan often said, grace is that which is shining in our heart as I am. So our own real nature takes over. There's a term in, in Arunacha Aksharamlai, there's a verb Bhagavan often uses, which is the root of the verb is al. Al means to take charge, to take as one's own, to take possession of. It's, um, I generally trans, there's no exact equivalent in English, but it's got, it implies two things. Firstly, it implies taking control of something and also taking care of something. That's why I generally translate it as taking charge. Supposing a child is orphaned and a loving adult takes charge of that child. That means they take full responsibility for the welfare of that child, for the upbringing of that child, for the, uh, and everything. That is taking charge. They're not just there to control the child. Of course, they have to take responsibility. So an adult in charge of a child has to have some, there has to be a certain degree of control, but it's mainly taking care of. So in Akshramlai, in so many verses, Bhagavan prays to Arunachala. For example, in verse 14, he says, Auve polenakun arole tandane aluva dunganad arunachala. Arunachala, like a mother, it is your duty to bestow your grace on me and, and take charge of me. Uh, he uses the word alubadu. Alubadu means taking charge of me. So uh, bestowing your grace and taking charge of me is your duty. Like a mother takes charge of a child, it's your duty to, to bestow your grace on me and to take charge of me. We can explain this. If to be, so long as we rise as ego, we are taking charge of ourselves. We, we are taking, we, I am the doer, I am the experience, I am, we, we, that I has taken over, ego has taken over. To the extent to which we surrender ourselves, to that extent, does God take charge of us? Does Arunacha take charge of us? When ego is completely annihilated, Arunacha takes complete charge of us. That is what Bhagavan meant when he said, it, uh, it was like an abasum. Arunacha had completely swallowed him. That is, he, he had gone. The body and mind were taken over by Arunachala. In another verse, he says, in verse 7 of um, 
perception of um, our natural number money malay. He sings anamalai adiene andavandre abudal kondai. That is, on the very day that you took charge of me, you took my body and soul as your as, as you you took. You took my body and soul. That means you took possession of my body and soul. So that is what Bhagavan's meaning there. He's not talking about being possessed by some spirit or something. That is, he was out of the picture. He had been swallowed by the Aranachala. The body and mind that remained in our view were taken over by Aranachala. So uh, Bhagavan sometimes said, but the actions of a, of a jnani are all the actions of God. Because there's no ego there. So who is acting through that body? It is God alone acting through that body. And who is God? Our own real nature. But of course, our own real nature is not a doer. So it is said God is doing because God, so long as we, we rise as ego, our own real nature, we take it as something other than ourselves, as if God, as if God was something other than ourselves. So there's a seeming, um, there's a seeming separation. Um, but it's, uh, of course, it, 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 there's no separation. It's only a state of oneness. In Bhagavan's actual experience, he has been swallowed by that light of pure awareness. In our view, the body still remains. Body and mind still remains. So what is acting through that body and mind is just the light of pure awareness, uh, the light of grace working through that body and mind for our benefit. So why that why that his body came back to life after twenty minutes? Because uh, Grace had a work had work for that body to do. Grace Grace had work to do through that body to give us these teachings. Does this help to clarify that adequately? Uh, yes, definitely. Thank you. And and, and I guess just just a, a quick um, so in. in uh, if one is following Bhagavan's teachings and his path and, and, and doing self-inquiry, is there any room for concern or, 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 or thinking that you know, we need to just be mindful or uh, pray for any kind of you know, protection from being distracted from the path by the outside The only thing that distracts say. us is our own vasanas, our own inclinations. That is because the nature of ego, as I was saying earlier, I, you, you maybe weren't here, I was talking about verse 25 of Uludhanaflu, Bhagavan says about ego, grasping form, it comes into existence, grasping form, it stands, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly, leaving form, it grasps form. The implication of that is ego cannot stand for a minute without grasping forms, without grasping phenomena, without attending to things other than itself. So, because ego has a strong, has, it cannot survive without uh, grasping things other than itself, it has very strong inclinations to grasp things other than itself. The inclinations to grasp things other than ourselves is what Bhagavan calls Vishaya Vasanas. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. In other words, forms. What, what he refers to in verse 25 of Ludanapdu's form is, is what is otherwise called Vishaya. Uh, uh, That's any object or phenomenon is a Vishaya. Vasana means inclination. So our inclination to grasp 
phenomena, our inclination to dwell on phenomena, our inclination to seek happiness in phenomena, they are, that is called Vishaya Vasanas. And that it, it, ego is not it's Vishaya Vasanas, but it is the very nature of ego to have Vishaya Vasanas. Because ego cannot survive without grasping things other than itself. So it has strong inclinations to grasp things. So it's those Vishaya Vasanas are the problem. Because when we try to turn within, Attending to ourselves is very easy. Why does it seem to us to be difficult? Because we don't want to. Because if we attend to ourselves keenly enough, we will be swallowed like Bhagavan was swallowed on that day. Because we are, until we are willing to surrender ourselves wholeheartedly, completely, without any reservation, there will always be resistance. Who is resisting? We ourselves are resisting because we're not willing to let go. So, the only obstacle on this path is ourself. That is, we ourselves have a problem we have to solve. The obstacle that stands in the way of our solving it is we ourselves. And the solution to the problem is we ourselves. That is, our rising as ego is the problem. Our clinging to things other than ourselves is, is the obstacle. And our holding on to ourselves is the solution. As simple as that. But nothing in this world can obstruct us turning within. It's only our own liking to cling to other things that is the obstacle. So people say, I, I, I want to meditate, but there's too much noise, or there's this or that, I'm not able to meditate, the mosquitoes are disturbing my meditation. It's not the mosquitoes, it's not the noise, it's not anything else. It's the liking of our attention, of our mind to go outwards, to attend to all these things. If we have sufficient love to go within, nothing can stand in our way. That's why Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. Love is the absolute key. Because Bhagavan was a, had so much, uh, was such a mature soul, he had so much love, he was willing to sacrifice himself, to, to surrender himself completely. So he went within, and in a split second, it, the story was finished. The ego <laughs> was aware yeah. of itself as Venkataram, I am Venkataraman, was finished. And yeah. what then shone through that body, is Arunachar itself, God itself, Guru itself. I just want to thank you again. And I do have a, just a couple of announcements I want to make while the majority of people are still here. First of all, thank you, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. Our Sunday satsang with Michael once a month, the first Sunday of every month, is two hours long. It's two wonderful hours long. And then every other Sunday when he's not here, we comment and study Ramana's teachings for 90 minutes on Sundays and I invite you who are new to the program today to consider coming, if you will, if you'd like to. Uh, if you're watching this video on YouTube and Michael posts them with audio and video, different modalities, uh, every, every time he has this program and he has others around the world he gives too, you're invited to join us here if you ever care to. Uh, just write me, I'm Ted, and you can write me at newsguy55 at aol.com, and I'll send you the links to our other programs coming up. And Michael, I wanted to ask you too, since this is you've come to the end of the reading today, what are you going to be commenting on and reading a month from today, relatively speaking? I, the first I, my suggestion is there always seem to be plenty of questions. So I I would be quite happy just to make the question and answer sessions, unless there's anything in particular you want me to 
to talk well, about. Well, that's a great idea. It counts. We, we really depend on you, the people participating, to come up with your questions. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, I've asked, I've done maybe 10,000 interviews in the news business, so I can come up with questions, but I'd rather have them from the people who are here, genuine questions that are on your mind at the time. That's a great idea. We'll try that starting next month. And I know you've talked about vasanas quite a few times here. It seems to be a topic of endless curiosity and interest. So if in doubt, talk about vasanas. There are only two problems, ego yes. and ego's vasanas. <laughs> that that ego, ego is the enemy commander in chief. The enemy army is the vasanas. That's the that's the what we're up fighting against. They are endless. But the trouble is, we are, as they say, um, what's it? There's a saying: um, running with the hare and hunting with the hound. We <laughs> we are perfect. fighting on both sides. Yeah, because yeah. we are the ego who is who is seeking to go within, but at the same time resisting to go within. And there are vasanas, not just in this lifetime. But if, you know, it, it, as the illusion goes, they're from previous lifetimes as well. Bhagavan uh, says, from time immemorial, <laughs> Tondru Tottu Varukindra Vishaya Vasana. He says in the beginning of the 10th paragraph of Nana, the, um, though Vishaya Vasanas rising countless numbers like ocean waves, though Vishaya Vasanas, which come from time immemorial, rising countless numbers like ocean waves. Why does he say they rise in countless numbers like ocean waves? All phenomena, all vishayas, all thoughts, all objects, all the whole world is nothing but uh, the sprouting of our vishaya vasanas. So the, the, our waking and dream state is nothing but the, the vishaya vasanas rising in countless numbers like ocean waves. Everything we experience is nothing but the, the the sprouting of the Vishaya Vasanas. That's wonderful. A minute now, a minute or two at the most for a parting comment or uh, greeting to Michael if you're new to him. Uh, uh, maybe you'd like to say thanks for his joining. He does this selflessly uh, without. I any don't do it selflessly. I'm very selfish. I love Bhagavan's teaching, so I love to talk about it. If I can uh, find some, some fools like me who are ready to listen to this, I'm very happy. Well, I'll, uh, I'll give you the highest praise I know. I was a C student all through school and university. Uh, I, I was asleep at the switch, and that's why. I never had a two-hour lecture in my life. I couldn't stay awake during a one-hour lecture for any of my <laughs> professors. Here's two hours for the first time in my life. I listen to every word you say because of that importance. But don't, don't thank me. Thank Bhagavan. But this, what I'm talking is entirely what Bhagavan has taught us. So it's so interesting. Michael is not an interesting person. What Michael is talking about is Bhagavan's teaching. That is what is interesting. So all thanks, all praise to Bhagavan. Thank you. And Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Om namo bhagavate sri arunachala ramanaya.